Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. In this episode, I'm joined by Juliana Stan Campiano, CEO of Oxygen. Juliana is an author, leader, and strategist, helping business leaders prepare their people for what happens next. For more than 15 years, she has helped leaders translate their company strategy into tangible achievements for their people. As CEO of Oxygen, Juliana has developed a unique perspective for modern learning that helps the workforce of today succeed tomorrow. And that is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Juliana's story of how she came to be the CEO and owner of the business, how she created her values, how she implemented those values to build her business and the process of her business, and then what they do as far as creating learning journeys for their clients and for their clients' employees. We talk a lot about what it means to create learning versus training and and how to do that the right way and and build it and think about it. It is definitely a different way of thinking about learning than most organizations are doing today. I think it's pretty compelling when you listen to it though. And and so hopefully this maybe opens some people's eyes, changes some minds, encourages some people to try some things a little bit differently. Here is Juliana Stan Campiano. Juliana, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on and talk about your business and, and business experience. I think you got a cool story, so it'd be fun to dive into it. Thank you for having me. I think I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yet to be determined. That's fair. That's exactly. fair. We'll, uh, we'll circle back to that at the end and <laughs> see how we do. I like to start at the beginning. I think origin stories are fun. We have heard stories of people starting in the quote-unquote proverbial mail room and working their way up in a business. But we don't often hear of somebody being a customer and then becoming the owner and CEO of the business. So (laughs) I would just love if you could explain what Oxygen is, first of all, and then how you came to work with Oxygen and, and came to be running Oxygen. Yeah, sounds good. It's always funny when people ask me that question at first, my face always kind of goes like a little shocked. And then they're like, Oh, well, you don't have to answer. And it's like, no, it's okay. It's just, it's a longer answer than I think what you were looking for. (laughs) I'll take whatever version of the answer you're interested in sharing. Sounds good. So at Oxygen, where we started was primarily in the learning development space. Today, we have a more comprehensive portfolio where we do services within learning and development. We do consulting for both learning and sales enablement organizations. And we have a creative studio as well, where we do a lot of things around branding and narrative and creative design work. So that's what Oxygen is today. How it came that I was the customer and then an employee and now the owner of it is that Oxygen was originally a UK-based company. And I met them when I first started working at Microsoft many years ago. They were helping with our leadership development. And about three weeks into my Microsoft employment, I went to, you know, so it was one of those like, can somebody help me with an event in Vienna? And I was like, I've never been to, yes, please. (laughs) I would like to help with an event in Vienna. I was based in Munich. And so I uh, went out there and met the one of the founders, went through an experience that was kind of none other than what I had been into before. I expected PowerPoints and people talking at you. And I got interactive activities and engagement 
and figuring things out while we were there. We had a whole scavenger hunt across Vienna as well in order to do some team bonding, actually. So the, you know, the reason for it was not to learn necessarily about Vienna, but to learn about your colleagues and then figure out what it was you learned about them and the team bonding and interactions. And I left that and thought, wow, if my education had been a little bit more experiential like that, I think I could have learned a lot more. And I just loved it. I was head in, wanted to do more of it. And I immediately went up to the founder and said, my team needs this and I've been told I'm in charge of it. And so I need you to help me do this, whatever this is that you're doing. And he said, okay. And we worked together for a couple of years doing a lot of leadership development, team development, events and offsites. And I learned so much. I learned early on about building rapport and having tough conversations and just a lot of what we call human skills today at Oxygen. They were formerly in my mind referred to as soft skills. And that didn't always seem to carry a business reason behind it. And I think the term human skills, which I think I heard from Simon Sinek really resonated with me. So learned a lot of those and then ended up leaving Microsoft and joining Oxygen because I was selling them within Microsoft as much as they were, you know, their person was selling within it and went in to grow the Microsoft account and eventually come to the US and open a US office because I'd been in Europe over two years, coming up on four years, and I was ready to to come closer to home. So four years in uh, about that, I it, Europe, I'd been with Oxygen for maybe seven or eight months, living in the UK, had just gotten married and we had some really big deals land and they wanted a US office. So I put a business case together and opened the office July 1st, 20, oh geez, 2008. And then really poor timing to open a new office. Everything just like completely went downhill for those that were around at that timing. Um, We had some really large deals pulled from the UK office. And before I knew it, I was helping them go into administration, which is the UK form of bankruptcy. And that's a whole story unto itself. But I bought the US business out of that bankruptcy. And that is how I became an owner. And then two days later, had my first child. And I was like, I don't think I know what I'm doing here. Oh, my gosh. I don't think you mentioned that in the prep that we were doing for this. Yes, that's a big life change. Yeah, that's my my husband always tells that story and I kind of forget about it. And he goes, but just remember, like it went through and then it was your birthday and then you had our son. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And then I had a baby. (laughs) And your birthday in there, too. Oh, my gosh. It's like every time you tell the story, there's one more piece that (laughs) keeps getting added into it. That's why it can be really long. And so people don't know what they're getting into when they ask about it. That's so interesting. Well, and I know we've we've talked about some of the other parts of administration. That seems like an interesting process, but we, we won't go into that. One comment that you had made to me when we were prepping for this, speaking of, is that while all the experiential education stuff that you were doing was great and you were really passionate about it, that you had seen some other areas where the company wasn't living the values that it was preaching to its clients. And so I just would be curious if you're willing to share, like, what did you see that tipped you off to that? Like, what was that disconnect? And then as you now are taking over this business, but also kind of building it from scratch out of the ashes of this administration process, 
how do you make those adjustments so that you close those gaps and and the way you're going to do business now is is more aligned yeah it's it's such a great question and it was really one of those fascinating things to think oh my gosh i'm joining what i think is going to be the end all be all very excited and quickly learned that and and it's some it was like down to sometimes to things like nobody ever set calendar invites for meetings and so nobody's time was respected and you would be i would always schedule meetings and i think this is coming out of microsoft like it's there's some things that are really ingrained in you right and it would be like hey i have a meeting scheduled right now like what are you all doing? Like, this is now my time. And it was just like, oh, can we do that later? Because we're now in this conversation. And, you know, that gets to be feel really disrespectful after a while to where I'd be like, no, either we're having this now or we're not going to have the meeting. I'm just going to like keep making my own decisions, <laughs> driving things forward, you know, and, and then very hierarchical. Some people in the organization had more power than other people. And it tended to be the divide between people out delivering and doing the work versus those in the office. You can imagine that there was more than likely a difference of gender that was represented in those roles. And it just, it really rubbed me the wrong way. And and even when I opened the US, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this how I thought it was going to be, you know, when I joined. And once I bought the business, and I think you know, as a startup kind of founder and CEO, a lot of people do this, you sit down and go, what are my values? Like, what do I care about? And those values have changed a little bit over the years, but not a lot. And number one is people. We're in the business of people. So if you don't value people and all the things about them, then I don't know why. I don't know why I bought the business. <laughs> you know, that would have been a really poor idea care a lot about just going the extra mile, you know, and and it's writing down like, what does that mean to you? And what does that look like? And it's, you know, it's the somebody leaves something behind, and you could run out and try to get them and get them the thing. Or you could just be like, Oh, I'll give it to them the next time, you know, and I, I wanted us to always be running out and trying to help the person or do the, you know, just doing that, that extra step. I cared a lot about business results and finding success. And I think, that's an interesting word because success means a lot of different things to different people. But the first year that I ran the business, we, you know, I, I bought it out of a bankruptcy, which is very intimidating and very scary. And you kind of step back and go, why do I think I can do it? And they couldn't do it. you know. And so business results were huge for me. Being cash flow positive was huge. Something I credit my mom with teaching us growing up, balancing a checkbook made a huge difference for me. And I was so cash flow positive the first year. And I learned a very hard business lesson, which was that the CPAs didn't think I would make any money. And I made a lot more than they expected. And I had to pay a huge tax bill on a very small company. (laughs) And they didn't tell me basically to pull the money out because I was the owner. So I wouldn't get double taxed. So... Wow, that was a massive lesson. And those are tough lessons to learn. Finances. So, you know, yeah. just all these things, they're kind of interwoven. And those are some of the things that stand out probably the most to me. But you have to get really clear on it. And I did that early on. And it's hard. And then it's a daily practice. And you're not always good at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I liked... Uh, so a couple of things that I like about what you said there. And the one is, I like that you 
explain people, but then you explain how it shows up. Like you could, if somebody walks out, leaves something behind, you could give it to them next time or you could run out after them. And I, I like that. It's just such a great visual that like, no, we're the type of people that are going to run out after them. We're going to do the extra thing. We're going to take the effort. Like that's how it's going to show up. So I like that real world example. I was going to ask you for some real world examples. So <laughs> there you go. The other thing I really liked about that, and I think this is interesting and, and maybe not talked about a lot is that one of your values was money and profitability. And I think when we think about what our values are as a business, you know, we're talking a lot about people and collaboration and trust, but every business should value money in some way. And I, I had another guest on here, Scott Miller, who said the same thing. He was, he was very heavy, a big believer on his personal values. And one of his was earning money so he could support himself and his family. And it, I don't know, it, it's weird that like there's some weird shame or guilt that a lot of people feel around that when I don't think there should be. I totally agree with you. And I have asked many executives about this over the years because there does seem to be something that can be perceived as negative to employees potentially or just, you know, in business when you go and I value us being, you know, financially successful. But if you don't have any, like what I would always say to my employees, like if I don't have any money, I can't pay your salary. I can't give you a raise. I can't give you a bonus, nor are you going to get health insurance, you know, let alone all the extra benefits. We're not going to be able to do anything fun. You're not going to get any development. Like it's tied to everything you can do that in my mind are the positive things that employees are asking for. Right. So if we can't have some discussion about that and understand how it happens because it doesn't happen out of thin air. I think we're really on the back foot. Yeah. And I think in, as you're explaining it and I'm thinking about it, like it, I think we're too quick to attribute any value around money with greed. Yes. I always have said the same thing. I think sometimes as a business owner, I think, oh, do they think I'm saying that because I just want to fill my pocket? Like those things go through my head, right? Versus it's the money gets distributed around so many things. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. And I, I agree. And I think that it can come down to people seeing these big businesses because it's hard, it's hard as an employee to go, well, we just, you know, it was a $20 billion business. Of course, there was money somewhere, you know, or, or whatever. So that, you know, there's size and scale that goes into that, but it is very interesting. Yes, for sure. I imagine there are times where values come into conflict though. And so let's take the two that you talked about, like people and money. There are times where doing the right thing may cost you money or where even though you could take care of the person, maybe it's not the right thing to do that and and you do need to protect the business. So how do you weigh competing situations where values are competing? It's a great question. What I would say is it happens a lot. It's not just once in a while. It's almost, it's monthly at least probably where something comes up. And it's one of those moments where you sit and you have to think through and weigh through what the situation is on either side, right? What certainty do I have here? What certainty do I have here? Now, which one? So A, what I will say is I, I've always seen my job as working for Oxygen, the entity, 
that my fiduciary responsibility is to the business continuing. And so I, I kind of take myself out of these situations sometimes. And I think, what's the best thing for the business overall? And that may be people related. It may be financially related. It may be customer related. Those are probably the, you know, the three main things like your people, your business results and your clients are all the three things that make my business move forward and grow. And, you know, you kind of list out the pros and cons and sit with it. And and it's a gut feel a lot of times for me of, you know, which one is going to be the most important for the future stake of the business. And it's not always the money, frankly. Um, I would say it's, I would say 75% of the time it's people. And I don't know how many times I've spent the extra money for client work to be redone or... And not because it was our fault, but because like the client changed their mind, you know, and it's just, you're right at those inflection points where my team will come to me and go, you know, we can say no and still deliver, or we can say yes. And we think it's going to meet the quality bar that you would expect. And that's what we think you want to do. But I want to confirm that with you. And it's like, yes, crying yeah i agree (laughs) yeah just because it's the right thing doesn't mean you have to feel good about it no totally yeah i agree some other things that you have written about as far as how you built the business and the importance of building businesses one of the terms you throw out is process can you talk to the word, what does the word process mean to you? And and can you talk to its importance? Yeah, the word process used to be something I shied away from a lot because in my mind, it felt like it stifled creativity. And so every time somebody came in and wanted to instill some sort of more rigid process, I would just like, oh, I would dig my heels in. And then I will say I have this great guy that I work with who came in, he's like a COO to me. And he has been amazing in learning the process by which I work and taking that and making it the process by which we work across the business. And so I think that, and I've had a lot of discussion with him about process. He's like a master Jedi PMP person. Like, you know, so like I can recite some of the book. It's really crazy to me. But we've made process less of a scary thing and one that can like service the business. And I think that's just that was the crux is like, I always saw a process being forced down people's throat of like, but that's not the next step. That's not how we do it. It needs to be done like this versus being open to the process changing depending on what the outcome is that you're driving. So most of what we do and what I'm interested in is serving some sort of outcome for the business. And I am all for process so long as it gets us to that outcome. But the moment that it starts to just like pigeonhole us in this time bound, not doing the work that we said that we would do, not going to reach the outcome, like that's where I I just kind of call a timeout typically. And it's like, we need to change, like this process is not working for what it is that we said we were going to do. So how do we change the process so that it, because we have to scale, right? It's a scale thing, having process, but how can we in the moment change it so it can meet the needs that we have to be hitting? 
So, and, and I mean, I wrote a book that's basically a whole process, which makes me laugh <laughs> now, but I'm, I'm all about being agile in the process. Can you give an example of how the, your COO took your working style and turned it into a process? Because I think that's really interesting. He's maybe one of the most patient people that I've ever met. And he asks a lot of questions. And so we talk about, and, and you see this across people in business all the time, this unconscious competence that people have. You meet these people that are so good at different things and you think, oh, how do you become so good at that? And if you ask them, wow, you are so amazing at delivering these speeches. Like, how do you do that? They go, uh, you know, it, it normally makes them freeze. And, the, you know, they're like, I don't know. It's just what I do. Like, I have been giving speeches for so long. I don't even know how I do it anymore. And he had that ability to, he, he knew this in people. And so he sat down and he said, will you just walk me through how you created X. And I was like, sure, this is where I started. This is what I did that. This is what I did that, you know? And, and he just, and then he's like, and then what happened after that? And then, you know, when somebody's asking you about something that you're really, that you love and you're excited about, and they're asking you these very detailed questions, it's very easy to just tell them all the things. And then he was like, there's your process. <laughs> Do you have an example of what that then turned into in the business? Yeah. I mean, it literally turned into the book that I wrote and the process by which we follow for all of our client work and engagements. And I think we come from an industry where the core work is where there's a lot of known processes and those never worked for me. And so that's it's always kind of a joke with the team about people that come in and they they know these frameworks or these methodologies and we have our own and it's a different approach and I think it's a different result as well. And so we use it across the board for almost everything that we design and deliver for clients. That's fantastic. And just, you've mentioned it twice. So, you know, want to plug your book for sure for people who are listening and are interested in building their own process. So the book is... Radical Outcomes, How to Create Extraordinary Teams That Get Tangible Results. And you can, I assume, find it anywhere books are sold. That's right. Okay. Do you want to share anything else about the book? You know, it's. I wrote it a few years ago. It was was an undertaking in and of itself. It's another one of those, I never thought I would do it kind of moments. But it's been, it's great. It's, I'd be happy to talk to anybody about writing a book. It's not easy. I'm thankful to have a great team that was able to help with it. And I think it is a lot about, you know, the things that we've been talking about. It's about driving a healthy team environment, creating outcomes for clients and doing it in a way that is fiscally thoughtful. Hmm. So in the book, you talk about process. You also talk about architecture. And I was just, what's the difference between the two and, and what is architecture? So architecture to us, and it's not a term that's used that often in our field. And in fact, we had a client recently that they do architecture type of work in their work. And so it was like, oh, you like the architecture word too, because some people just like shut down and don't understand it. Essentially for us, architecture is, you know, it's it's a little bit like you wouldn't build a house without having an, an architecture first, right? So why do you build a learning path for somebody 
and a bunch of learning without kind of knowing where you expect that they're going to be going. People come to work. I believe they want to be successful. I believe they want to show up and do good work. And I think a lot of us have showed up to work before and been like, I have no idea if I'm doing good work or not. And I don't know how to know if I'm, you know, doing well. And so we talk a lot about career paths, but this is more architecting the learning that you need through time to be able to become that person that is so amazing at selling technical things or, you know, whatever it is that your trajectory is on. We map all the things to outcomes of what somebody's actually doing at work so that you can say, as a manager, you can look in and go, okay, that's where they're at on their learning path. These are the expectations of where they would be at this time. And it makes it measurable for both the company and the individual. And um, and I also believe a lot of money is just wasted on learning and development in the industry of just creating stuff because somebody has asked for it. And architecture means that you're creating things on purpose in order to help somebody achieve something specific. If somebody wanted to start down this architecture path and said, listen to that and said, holy cow, you're right, Juliana, we don't have a freaking clue where we're pointing the ship. We're just doing all this ad hoc training right now. Obviously, they can hire you to do this, but if, if they wanted to get started on their own to get their arms around this, like where would somebody start with this? I would start with looking at one of your roles internally and go, what's our learning path for this role? Where do they start? Then where do they go? Then where do they go next? And do we know where we expect them to be in three years if they're in this role? And does that include... I know you don't like the word training, but does that include, I'll, I'm going to use it just in this context, like training the company is providing to or education the company is providing as well as education they're getting just from experience on the job. Like we're just saying we want, we know they kind of come in here. We want them to get up here. And so we know they're going to learn some of this on their own, just from experience. We know some of it's going to come from mentorship. Some of it's going to come from learning like that yeah, type of thing. Of Okay. Yeah, when you when you take all that and map it out, it's like such an amazing view of somebody's experience, right? That they get from from work. And I think from a leadership perspective, we've seen this happen a few times where it helps leaders have more realistic expectations of the time it takes somebody to get from here to here. It's still amazing. We when we're doing the this work currently where it's you know, we walk in, it's like, well, we want everybody to be like this guy who's been doing it for 30 years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no problem. I'll just manufacture a bunch of those. Well, we have to figure out where people are at, right? And we have to figure out where he's at. And then we have to figure out all the things that happened in the middle to get him to where he's at. And we have to replicate that for everybody else to go through. And that includes hard skill that includes i won't say hard and soft i'll say technical skills human skills all the different pieces that go into that yeah and time to do the job you know and and show the work and make changes and get mentoring and coaching it's all of it right and when you space it out like that it's really fascinating to see what that could look like and then to say well if we do map it all out and we put somebody through it how much more effective is that than like just all the random stuff that people are getting 
you know, a lot of companies just like, hey, do this for learning. Hey, do this. Hey, and you're, we're recommending this, the whole Netflix of learning thing. I was like, ah, you're just going to get recommended all these things. How does the algorithm know you? <laughs> it's more just pushing content your way versus saying, hey, I know who you are as an individual and your role and where you're headed. And let me give you things that are actually going to get you there. Why the difference between training and learning? <laughs> I think it's, you know, coming up in this industry, I think the old story is like you train dogs, but not humans. I think learning feels more inclusive, personally. I think it feels like there's room to do things differently and not have it all be exactly the same. I think when you're training something, and I think there's a, a space for training, right? On a manufacturing line, which is where it came from. <laughs> And this literally, you know, the learning industry came out of training soldiers to go to war and replicating that. That's like, that was all the, you know, gun usage. That's where it originally kind of was the first time where it was done at scale was for war. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why it's basic training, right? Because the army expects you to do it just like this. And it's because that's life and death. And I do think in this corporate space that we're in, there are some things that are training. And I hope that pilots and doctors, you know, they go through very specific and rigid training. And I think that, you know, for a lot of the knowledge working side, I'm hopeful that they're just continuously learning and figuring out how to do something. And, and maybe it's not all the same because there's greatness in the difference. Yeah. And I love just hearing you say that. I love how much broader learning can be. Whereas training, we think of somebody teaching somebody else or teaching a group of people, you know, there's a, there's a specific image of training, whereas you can learn things a lot of different ways. And so it's just Anywhere. how, yeah, how are we going to help this person learn these skills it, to the comment I made earlier? Sometimes it's just going to be on the job. Sometimes you're going to need a training. Sometimes you're going to need some kind of experience design, you know, or simulation or you know, whatever the case might be. Yeah, we have we continuously ask people always where they go to learn something when they're not at work. I feel like it gives you a glimpse into how people consume content when they know that they want to consume that they're actively looking for. And it's amazing what we've learned about people over the years and specifically in different roles, right? So we had one role that was like high commuter role. And so many people listen to podcasts. It was awesome. We're like, great, we're going to sprinkle podcasts throughout this like experience for you that you can listen to on your commute because a lot of them were commuting by bus as well, car and bus. And you don't necessarily think about that, right? So I think the other thing with the learning to your point is a lot of our architectures pull in things from TED Talks and articles that have been written and podcasts that have been done. It's It's not just your corporate, what we've decided. It's it's all the things. And then we give them space to discuss, experience it, figure the thing out within the environment that they do work in, and then keep going with their learning, which can be so... There's so much out there. Do your clients show their employees those architecture plans or a version of them? Not typically... We've done this, but only with a very few clients where we've actually created an online experience that's like a UI UX that is the architecture. 
you know, so it's like the functional specification document that gets architected out into an online experience to go through. They do show it to them in a high level way. So we always create like, an architecture is not necessarily the pretty document, right? It's like ours is fairly detailed and it's in an Excel document or whatever, but we always create a polished version of it that people would see. It's a little bit more high level, but kind of shows the journey and the path and the expectation. Something that outlines the journey that they are expected to go on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And are you doing... I, I want to come at the same... I think it's the same question, but from two different ways, which is one, I want to ask you what makes your training unique. And then at the same time, I kind of want to answer it by saying, <laughs> do you do this unique, really hyper-individualized architecture for each client? And is that what makes it unique, I guess? I think it's a part of... Yes, I think it's a part of what makes it unique is that it's when we talk about customization, right? And there's been a lot about that lately. People expect custom stuff coming their way because we are getting custom messages sent to us all the time from different angles. And so it helps to be custom. And I also think knowledge workers, especially today, when you show up and it's generic, you tend to go, "Mm, that's really not for me. And you don't engage. And so that that is a big part of it is like, how do you make it as land as much as possible with the person and the job that they're doing and make it as relevant as possible? And then I think another aspect is the creative agency side that I started a few years ago. I've never really understood why our internal audiences don't get the same kind of fidelity and thoughtfulness around the creative as our external audiences. And I think this is even more and more important today than even just a few years ago. People are expecting things to, you know, to look good and to be interesting to look at and to be visually interesting and to to read writing or hear writing that is engaging and kind of captivating in manner. And so that's a lot of what the agency has brought us. And so, in fact, we had a client recently who's in the retail space just say, I don't really know what to call it, what we've created, but I don't want to call it e-learning because it's not e-learning. It's just this like online experience that people are going to learn from. I was like, yes. I was like, I love it. <laughs> what? So I wanted to circle back on experiential education because I'm a big fan and proponent of experiential education too. But so whether that you want to share that example or maybe that's proprietary, but what makes it not e-learning, but an, an e-experience? Like what makes it an online experience? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was going through some old things that we created the other day and I think, and I was like, I should write this down. <laughs> right. So I'll tell you now, and then I'll I'll go back and write down these, these points. But um, we don't start things with a welcome to Sales 101. The objectives for you today are to learn this, 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 for you to understand the word I hate the most, how we sell here, what our sales process is, you know, and it's just like, I think we've all been through those. And and at the end of just the introduction, you're like, how do I fast? Like, how do I get through this thing? (laughs) You know, so a lot of ours enter with like, yeah, like you're new here welcome. We're going to now go through some of the fundamentals that you need to know about selling here at this company. You probably have experience selling because that's who we hire. So we're going to give you some of that information so that you can refer to this later. You know, it's very 
I don't even know the the word, but like the tone is not condescending. Yeah, pure. <laughs> it's like a pure, yes. And you hear from your peers along the way because honestly, like people want to know from the people that are doing this well how they do it. They don't want you to tell them what we think you should be doing. We want to know how it works. So that is one way, you know, so just the entrance, right, is very different than what you would typically walk into. And then we have a rule where you don't go two slides without something being interactive for the person to be doing themselves. And it's not about, is it A, B, C, or D? It's more like, now that you've been through that and you've heard from a peer, write down three things in this empty box that you're going to take away with you. At the end of this, you can download that and print it if you want to or you know, have it for reference. So it's really about engaging people throughout and giving them the things they need to learn, but not telling them what it is that they're learning, if that makes sense, which I think is what experiential learning is, personally. It's giving you the tools. You know, It's like, here's a whole kit of things. You can make a house out of it. Make a house. And then you're figuring out how to make a house and you're going to mess up a few times and it's going to fall down before you figure out how to make a house. And your house might not look like my house, but it still might be a house. How easy or hard is it to get customers to see the value in your approach? (laughs) It's very hard going in. It's very easy after we've done it once. Hmm. And what are the hangups for people? Sounds complicated. Sounds like it's going to take too long. Sounds exactly what like we've been asked for, but I haven't done it like that before. And that sounds risky to me. I know if I do it like this, we have a joke, like nobody ever got fired for hiring McKinsey. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Right. McKinsey. But like they would get fired if they hired oxygen and it went poorly. Yeah. And so, you know, how do you get around those barriers? Yeah. Here's another secret. I don't think anybody would get fired. I think that's, uh, I think it feels like that to the people in those positions, but I don't think that that's true, right? Like if you had a good reason for making that decision and used your professional perspective and experience, like I don't think anybody's going to fire you for that. And if they do, okay, go like you should just go work somewhere else. That's totally fair. I think this is a totally aside and little soapbox, but I think a lot of people are, I don't know why, but so many people feel afraid to do anything different or stand out in corporate America for fear of getting fired when in reality, they're not happy the way that they're doing it anyway. And there are so many companies out there that are doing things differently. It's just, I don't, it's a weird part of human nature that we feel stuck when if you just picked your head up, there's so many options. Yes. And a lot of times they come to us wanting different. And then when we show them what different looks like, it's like, maybe not that different. Right. And so then it's like this kind of back and forth or, you know, and it is, it's very, I agree with you. That's a very interesting, somebody should do a research study on that. Yes. I think the other part of that is that people aren't willing to be transparent about who they really are and what they actually want. Because if they said, we don't want it to be different, we, we, wanted, we like doing this type of training, we know that it 
works a certain percentage of the time. So we're going to do this type of training. That's fine. But I think everybody, there's this also this pressure to say that you're doing things innovative and try to push the boundaries in some way when in reality, they're never going to. And so you see that a lot. You see that with people who take new jobs in places and they're sold something and they get in and it's totally different. They don't have the autonomy or control they thought they were going to have. But we see that with our clients sometimes too, where you know they say, oh yeah, we want you to come in and we want to change all these things. And then you get in and you show all the changes and they're like, ah, we can't do that. We can't do that. Yeah. it's That's too much of a lift. It's too much of this. It's too much of that. We're not ready for it. Yeah. How do you help people through that mental process? My people that work for me or my clients or both? <laughs> however you want to take that. I was thinking clients, but if however you want to answer that question is is great. I mean, it, it's we've just been through this very recently. I mean, I, I guess we're in it a lot. And so I think it's an interesting question because it has also come down to me hiring people and finding people within the industry, but that are really willing to take a leap and do something differently. And this happened within our team recently where I said, why, you know, I also listened to the client call and this is what I heard. And at first it was like a real disagreement. And I mean, there's a lot you could chalk into this story because my employee said, can I, am I allowed to disagree? And I said, absolutely. And he was like, all in. So that was fun in and of itself. And he, you know, it was a pretty contentious, like, but they asked for this. And I said, yes, but they want this outcome. And just because they asked for this, in my mind, they're not going to get this outcome that they've asked for. So do we answer the mail or do we show them what we believe they could do to actually get to the outcome that they're at? And it was a real like, oh, that's so frustrating, you know, kind of moment. And so we went the route and did it the way that we thought it should be done in order to reach the outcome. And then had this great like discourse back and forth with the client that was like, okay, I see it. I think you're right. But, but to your point, like, but I'm not going to be able to do all of that. So what are the key components that I could do first that are going to get us going towards that outcome? And we can introduce other things later once we have buy-in. And that was a very, in my mind, he's a very smart, savvy business buyer and asked some really good questions and threw some things back over the wall to us. And we responded and we didn't always respond in the manner that we felt like was expected. And that created a lot of angst in some ways on my team. But then I just was on a call with them and we were the last partner standing because we challenged his thinking and asked questions. And we didn't just answer that. He literally almost said that, like, you didn't just answer the mail. So, you know, it's hard if we had a buyer that was actually wanted us to answer the mail and we didn't, we would have missed out. And then, you know, Jason on my team would have been right. And we would be difficult to buy from. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it's funny. The thought that pops into my head as you're saying that is that you really have to pick which way you're going to be. You have to pick your philosophy. Are we going to do it the way that we think is best for the client or are we going to do what the client asks us to do? And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. But, you know, I've had scenarios where a client says or a, a prospective client will say, "Here's what we want." 
and we walk in and we deliver that. And the feedback we get is you absolutely delivered everything we wanted better than anybody else. But in the process, we learned that that's not what we need. And so we're going to go this other way. (laughs) And I've been in processes where we say, you know, this is not what they need. They're not going to get a good outcome. We're going to go in and we're going to pitch this other thing. And they go, that's totally great. And you're probably right, but we just can't get that approved. And so we're going to go this other way. And so, you know, I've lost it on both sides. And I think you just have to pick which one you're going to be. And it's funny because this morning I had a call where we got, it's a prospective client again, and they're going to run three RFPs. And we think they're doing it in the reverse order of the way that they should be doing it. And we said, look, if you're going to do this, that's fine. But if we were going to help you, we'd be, this is how we would come at it and do it. And they said at the end, you know, hey, you've given us a lot of great stuff to think about. We're going to go talk about this internally. And it could go either way. Sometimes you win those and sometimes you don't. But I think you just have to pick one uh, on how you want to operate and just stick with it, knowing you're going to lose some anyway. Totally. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think that was the contention between us is I, I said, but I started the whole company based on this philosophy. You can't tell me we're now going to propose the philosophy just because you think that that's what the client might want. Like we have to put ourselves out there and we have to, right. You're, you're risking being said, you know, being told no. Was his perspective coming from that he really believed that that was right for the client or was it coming from a place of maybe fear that the client was going to be upset that they, that he wasn't giving him what he asked for? Yeah, I think it was the latter. It was the fear, potential, the potential fear that the client would be upset. And I can understand that. I think we do a lot of work in sales and sales learning. And I think it's it's fascinating to me because that's such a hard job. And I don't know that we give enough credence to how hard it is to learn somebody else's business really well learn the business that they work for really well, and then try to bring those two worlds together to create a monetary exchange of goods, like so hard. And so I I had a lot of empathy for him. And that's why I also said, I'm happy to be on, you know, to talk through this and to support you and, and also to take the blame (laughs) should I need to, you know, like I'm grown up enough to be able to do that as well (laughs) and, and own it if it doesn't go the way that we think it might go. That's good leadership right there, being willing to fall on the sword. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to sometimes. And the more, you know, it's like the more experience you have and the more times that things like don't go your way, the less worried you are about which way they're going to go versus getting to clarity. I think the clients that drive me the most crazy is the ones that just don't give you an answer. And you're like, just tell me no. Please just tell me no. And they're like, well, actually, maybe we're going to, you know, and it just like strings out. And you're like, is it yes or no? <laughs> The other one is when they ghost you completely. Totally. Which that's I have like, one of those going on right now. Fun. Sorry, that's the worst. So let's, I want to just dig into this for a second because what we're really talking about is scarcity and abundance. And is there anything that you do either for yourself or for your team to foster more abundance or a mindset of abundance? Yes. Always. And I think this is one of the things that I I learned about this mindset of abundance from oxygen when I was learning from them so many years ago. And it was such an amazing thing to learn about this concept of scarcity and abundance. And 
I have uh, very much a mindset of abundance. There's enough out there for all of us. And let's support each other to all win. And I have kept a sticky note on my desk for a very long time now that says, if you didn't have anything to lose, what would you do? And I think that, and I, I do say that to my team a decent amount, you know, and especially in the sales space, like we're going to win some, we're going to lose some, like, let's just put ourselves out there. It's hard, especially the later you get and the more like things you acquire and the kids and the dogs and the, you know, all the, all those things that you start to feel a pressure of, of in some ways from a monetary perspective, but the best decisions I've made are the ones that like, you know, you go with your gut and you don't think that it couldn't work. You just think that there's a space out there for you amongst with everybody else. It's hard. It is. And it, to your point, like it ebbs and flows. And if you're in a particularly low point, it's hard to, you got to really go back and find that abundance and super hard. And I've been there and we've belly scraped multiple times. And man, it's just, I don't know. You have to believe something's going to work out. Yeah. And then work your ass off to make it work out. (laughs) Yeah. What doesn't work is hunkering down and like shutting the shades and just like (laughs) pretending like nothing, nobody exists. It doesn't work. That hope hope is not a strategy. Yeah. Doesn't show up out of thin air. I can tell you that it comes out of like, you know, just the perseverance of like, and it, I think we help each other at, all, at given times, right? And you can see this in your people. Sometimes they need to be told like, hey, I want you to just get out there and talk to five people this week, you know, or, or go do X or go do Y. And this it's activity. And I find when there's activity for people, it keeps them engaged. It keeps them kind of motivated and going. It's that con- the connections. Man, through COVID, that was, you know, we, we've all gone through that, but it's it's tough. Well, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I just have a few quick questions at the end. The first question that I like to ask people is, what are you sick of talking about? Oh my gosh. I have to tell you that I dwelled on this question this morning because I don't know that my answer would be very favorable. <laughs> you know, like, so a little bit of uh, maybe a leap, but... I will tell you, I am, I am very supportive of healthy work environments. I'm kind of sick of talking about them right now. <laughs> That's fair. And I, you know, it's just I don't know if it's a time or a place, and it's like I want us all, and I, and it's not just an oxygen thing, but it's like, can we just do it already? Like I think it's an impatience kind of thing of like. We know this. We are all human. Why are we not just doing it? And you know, why do we keep walking into organizations and hearing about people not actually doing this or talking to friends and hearing about it not happening at work is so frustrating to me. And I wish it would turn into more action that is actually making a difference than hearing about it on the news and LinkedIn. I I think that's great. I, I agree with that in many ways. What aren't people talking enough about or, or what are you most excited to be talking about? What I'm most excited to be talking about is, I think, tw- you know, 2023, actually, for all the like bad places that many people can be right now, 
I think there's a lot of opportunity, primarily because we're coming into the like latter stages of pandemic. If you look at like the history and kind of where we're at, right? So that part is definitely changing. And with the tech layoffs that we've seen comes innovation and new jobs and new things. And so I'm actually excited about that because I think that the pandemic held some of that back and tech took off so much, right? As we all know, and provided many things that we're very thankful for to have during the pandemic to be able to keep working and maybe like too much (laughs) of a good thing at times. And, you know, I was listening to NPR the other day and they said, you know, it's some of our most skilled workforce that's been laid off. And I think that the person that was speaking couldn't be more right. There's going to be so many people out there either joining small companies that are trying to do things differently that's going to help us from a world perspective, or they're going to be starting new companies, which is what we saw a lot in the 2008-2009 timeframe that were really good for us. So as hard as it can be in the moment, and I feel for people that have been laid off and are trying to figure out what to do and needing to support people, I think, again, it's that abundance mentality. I'm, I'm also eternal optimist, which probably helps with that. I just think that good, a lot of good can come from it. And I've also been there where you feel like the world kind of closed in on you. And I would say, when you're in that space, the best thing I found to do is like reach out to another human and talk to him and reach out to another person and talk to him. And when somebody says you should talk to so-and-so, like, don't stay at home in your pajamas, like go talk to so-and-so. And that's, building those connection points can really pull you out of kind of times that feel really dark. Yeah. And I've, I've experienced that too, where you just, you have that feeling and you're like, all I want to do is sit here. And then if you can get yourself to get out and be with another person, it just, it never fails to make you feel better. I know you're like, I'm so glad I like how many times have we done this since the pandemic and like going out and finally seeing people where you're like, kind of in my sweatpants again today, kind of enjoying that. But okay, I'll go see so-and-so. And And then by the end of the night, you feel that just like total fulfillment right in the middle of your chest. And you just, you know, it couldn't get better. And you feel like you have another ally out there working with you. And I don't know, makes a huge difference. So I'm actually really excited for where 2023 is going to end. I think it's going to be a lot different than how it started. Yeah, I love that. I love the optimism. And the uh, the last question that I always ask people, just because I think it's interesting, and especially you being a business leader and the way you approach your business, what is the purpose of business? Yeah, I like this question because I think that in some ways it can go really sideways, right? And what is the purpose of business? I think from my own personal perspective, and when I started Oxygen and bought Oxygen, it was like, people need this, right? So there's a, there's a need that you see that other people don't see. And I think that's the purpose of business. You have something that you can offer that's going to take humanity, you know, one more step further. And from my perspective, and you mentioned this earlier about the experiential learning, so many people, and I still see this today and I see it with my kids they need it in their lives. We don't stop learning after we go through college. You know, we have to, we deserve the opportunity, I think, to have learning that is going to meet us where we're at and take us to this like place that we want to be. Everybody deserves that. And so I think business is created because there's a need and somebody, somebody needs what you have and it keeps us all 
I don't know, kind of marching forward in some ways. I love that. Juliana, this has been a fantastic conversation. If people want to engage with Oxygen, how do they do that? We are on all the different social platforms. So Twitter, Oxygen, EXP. Our website is the same, Oxygen, EXP. Those are the main ones. LinkedIn as well, Oxygen, EXP. You'll find us, <laughs> find us anywhere. All right. And we'll link to all that in the show notes for anybody who wants a little bit more experiential learning learning architecture and Juliana Stancampiano in their lives. So <laughs> Juliana, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing. I think you have a fantastic story and just love the way that you approach the work that you do. Thank you so much. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.